Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Longinusa, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, the show where industry leaders, golf professionals, and legends all come and discuss the great game we love so much. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our host to tell us who's next on the tee. Chris, take it away. Hey, thank you, Joe. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining me again today on a very special Masters Review and Preview edition of Next on the Tee. We are brought to you today by the great folks over at the French Lick Resort. Folks, their Pete Dye and Donald Ross design courses were ranked number one and number two in the state of Indiana by Golf Week. It was the site of last year's Senior PGA Championship and the LPGA Legends Championship. Check them out online at FrenchLick.com. We are also sponsored by our friends over at The Leather Shop, makers of top-quality custom-made leather dress, casual, and golf shoes. Folks, do your feet a favor and put them inside a pair of their shoes. It's going to be keeping those feet feeling good all day long. You can find them online at the-leather-shop.com. I am your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I have the wonderful privilege of having the voice of golf, Peter Kessler, back with me. For those of you who have been a part of the show over the last few years, you know how much I revere Peter Kessler. He has interviewed almost every major figure in the history of the game of golf, and no one has ever done it better than Peter Kessler has. Today, we'll chat about the history of the Augusta National Golf Club and the history of the Masters Tournament itself. Peter is going to be with me here in just a few moments. So, folks, we're going to have a lot of fun today. It's going to be another insightful show, and I am so glad that you are here to take the journey with me again this morning. But let's start the show off right by helping you start your mornings off right, and that is by going to check out our friends over at Aroma Ridge because they offer an array of the finest mountain-grown gourmet coffees that you're going to find anywhere. You can find them online at aromaridge.com. Folks, their secret Hand-selected beans from a variety of golf uh, coffee-producing countries from around the world. They roast those beans for you to perfection by their very own Roastmaster. So if you like a little flavor in your coffee, too, they have almost any flavor that you can imagine. Plus, you can sort of mix and match flavors if you like to create one of your own. They've also added a wonderful line of biscotti cookies. And not only are their coffees great, folks, but they are fantastic people to deal with as well. Check out all of their great products, again, online at aromaridge.com. Next on the tee is brought to you by our friends, like I say, at the French Lake Resort up in French Lake, Indiana. Folks, you want to talk about a spectacular place to both play golf and just relax and enjoy yourself. Well, you're not going to find a better place anywhere on the planet than the French Lake Resort. Please go to frenchlake.com to see for yourself. Let's hear a word from our friends up there. Now's the time to plan that golf getaway you've been dreaming about at French Lake Resort. We have new Golf Academy packages for 2016, guaranteed to take your game to the next level. Try our one-day Quick Fix Academy for golf emergencies. For more in-depth learning, try the Game Changer, designed to make you a better player. Our staff professionals are ready to work with you at French Lick Resort. Did you know there's only one place in the country that you can play courses designed by two members of the World Golf Hall of Fame on the same property? The Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses at French Lick Resort make us an ultimate golf destination for 2016. Check out the Ultimate Golf Package, the Hall of Fame Package, and other great offerings at FrenchLick.com. 
Let 2016 be that year you finally take your dream golf getaway at French Lick Resort. Play the courses champions play. Folks, I promise you, it is spectacular. My family and I can't wait to get back up there again this year. The French Lick Resort needs to be on your list of places to stay and play. Oh, by the way, my friends, they also have a casino right there on the property as well. For more information and to book your stay, go to FrenchLick.com. We're also sponsored this week, like I I said at the top, by The Leather Shop. Let's hear a word from our friends over there. Check out our friends at The Leather Shop, the only company in the world with the ability to provide true, custom-fit, handcrafted, full-grain leather shoes and boots online. That's right. No need to leave home for quality handmade shoes. The best part? The models on their website are mere suggestions. You can request customizations to any design shown or submit your own unique design. No extra charge. For more information, visit our website, nextonthetea.net, and click the TLS logo on the bottom of our homepage, or to visit them directly, go to www.the-leather-shop.com and click your country's flag in the top left corner. That's www.the-leather-shop.com. Yeah, they've got a wonderful array of shoes and other leather leather products for you. Check them out online at the-leather-shop.com. And folks, every week here on Next on the T, we like to kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women serving in every branch of our military who are tuning in today around the world. We want to thank all of you for the daily sacrifices that you and your families are making to protect our freedoms and our liberties. We also want to thank our veterans for all that you and your families have done for us over the years. It is through your strength and your efforts that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and the wonderful folks at the Armed Forces Radio Network. Such an honor for us to have Next on the T be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. Also want to remind our veterans, please continue to be sure to check out globalvoiceforveterans.org. Great site, a lot of news and articles, and a wealth of information that is specifically geared towards our veterans out there that I'm sure you're going to find both interesting and beneficial. Again, globalvoiceforveterans.org. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort line is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Folks, the style and grace with which Peter conducts interviews is the best I've ever heard and very likely the best there's ever been. Like I said at the top of the show, he has interviewed almost every major golf figure of the 20th and 21st centuries. His knowledge and the history of the game is absolutely unmatched. And among the many blessings that I've had doing, doing this show, None has ever been greater than the privilege of getting to spend some time listening to Peter share his stories and his insights with us. Good morning, Peter. How are you, my friend? Uh, it's good to be with you, especially good to be with you on a master Saturday. Unfortunately, we only get one of those a year. <laughs> Indeed, that is unfortunate. So, Peter, take us back to the beginning of the Augusta National Golf Club. Why did Bobby Jones go over to Augusta, Georgia, to create his club instead of doing it right here in his hometown of Atlanta? Well, because Augusta is closer to the sea level and is closer to uh, the ocean than is uh, Atlanta, which has an elevation increase over Augusta. And Augusta is a really nice place to play golf in the winter. And Atlanta is not always a nice place to play golf in the winter. So he wanted to build a golf club where he thought his friends would enjoy coming down. It would be a couple of hour drive from Atlanta. 
and play a little golf and get away from things. And so they decided that they would go ahead and look for land in Augusta and Clifford Roberts, who later became the chairman and who basically ran Augusta National, found the piece of property and he sent Jones over to look for, look at it. And it turns out that the property was the largest nursery in the South, that it was owned by a family called the Berkmans. And really from the end of the Civil War into the early 1900s, it was the uh, nursery of the South. It had 900 varieties of apples and 1,300 varieties of pear, literally. Uh, the first azalean bush was on the pro- the first azalean bush in the south was on the property. The first building using concrete, which is still there, the manor house converted to the clubhouse, was there. And the whole thing is built on the side of a hill that's probably 45 degrees, um, and uh, it. It makes it extremely difficult walking, and it's not easy to watch what's going on there. But when Jones first came to the property, he walked around to the to the back of what was the manor house, so the back entrance of the clubhouse, and he looked down upon the property because the whole thing is laid on to, is on, is on a hill. And Jones said that this property has just been sitting here waiting for somebody to lay a golf course upon it. And so they bought the property. And uh, Jones later hired uh, Alistair McKenzie, Dr. Alistair McKenzie, to help him build the golf course. He had been out, Jones, in 1929 to play the amateur at Pebble Beach, and he lost in the first round. And so with a lot of time on his hands, he went over and played Cypress Point, um, which had just been built by Dr. Alistair McKenzie, and he played Paso Tiempo, which McKenzie had a major hand in. And they talked about golf, and they talked about golf courses, and they agreed that the best golf course in the world was the old course at St. Andrews. And that's when Jones decided that he would have McKenzie design with him his dream golf course for his friends to play and maybe have a golf tournament once a year for some of his professional and and, and fine playing amateur friends to go ahead and play. Um, so it was, uh, it, it was something that, uh, that Jones had dearly wanted to do. He was a great believer in fellowship. And, uh, so when he found this property, the largest nursery in the South, he knew he had found, uh, the place that he was looking for, but the key is that the property is is literally on a hill, and so when you're playing some of the holes, you feel like you could ski down the slopes even though there's no snow. I remember the first time I went to the Masters in 95, I was walking with Arnold's wife, Winnie Palmer, the late Winnie Palmer, and we got to the 18th hole, and we started to walk the 18th hole, and I said to her, I'm, I'm almost winded. I'm almost out of breath, and she said, because we're walking straight up a hill, and you don't realize it, but you're walking straight up a hill when you walk up the first fairway, when you walk up the 18th fairway. Uh, you're straight downhill when you're going down 10, straight downhill when you're going down 2. So there's incredible elevation changes on the property, but uh, Jones loved what he saw, and he thought it was a perfect place for a golf course, and he could even see at the bottom of the property where Ray's Creek is and 11, 12, and 13 are. He could even see the holes, basically, you know, already in his mind's eye that just needed a flag stick and a couple of T-markers to complete them. So 
uh, he knew exactly what it was when he found it. And to to your point about the elevation changes, Peter, I think, you know, and I, and I felt the same thing in, in walking the property. I think it's something that people don't get enough sense of. The television doesn't do justice to not only the, the elevation changes and the layouts of the hole, but the undulations and the slopes of all the greens. Well, the greens are... The greens are brutal. I played there one time. I played there uh, March 16th of 2002. And the reason I remember the date is because March 17th of 2002 marked the 100th anniversary of Bobby Jones's birth. And I was hosting the centennial celebration in Atlanta. And my fee was to play Augusta National, the big course, and the par three course. And, you know, when you go to somewhere like Augusta National or the old course for the first time, you know, there's so much history there and there's so much history that you know just from watching it on TV that you say, oh yeah, that's where so-and-so hit this shot and that's where Jack Nicklaus made the putt on number two and so you get really caught up in the history of the place and the look of the place and the greens are really hard. The greens are so hard. I remember on number 14, it's the one where when you watch it on TV and the balls come in, they slide down the hill to, as you're watching TV, to your left, but to the golfer's right, goes down a steep hill and collects in a little in a little bottom area. If the pin is back left and you are front right, then it's almost impossible to get to the pin unless you play intentionally long of the pin, almost enough to knock it off the green and have a putt coming back for a par from 10 or 15 feet. And you can use four different shots to get there, and three of them are going to be unsuccessful. You can try to land a wedge at the top of the hill, but it won't stay, and it comes back down to your feet. You can try a putter, it comes back down to your feet. You can try a hybrid, but it's way too much club. It doesn't lose enough steam. And then you find out that you really want to just play a little six iron and pass it and end at 15 and have it finish up 15 feet past the hole. You would never dream of such a thing when you when you go to play a golf course that, my God, there's four different ways to play this hole, and you can't figure out which one you ought to do. And the first three are going to be largely unsuccessful. It's a really difficult set of greens. They've got these teeny little. They're not even platforms. They're like these little tongues all over the golf course on these greens these they're they're like coffin sized almost in terms of their shape and they put the pins on these things and if you you know and if you're a little bit too bold then you fall off the other edge and you go 15 feet away and if you miss it on the sides it falls off the edge and I mean, they're really, really difficult to ro- you have to like roll it up a ramp and stop it at the top of the hill. I mean, really hard stuff. So I was flabbergasted at how difficult I thought the greens were. I, I couldn't imagine, you know, the membership playing those every day and and you know and and I I could I, I couldn't imagine what the reaction was of the everyday golfer who's a member of Augusta National what he thinks of his own greens because I thought they were exceedingly difficult and I'm guessing they think that they're exceedingly difficult but it's Masters and it's Augusta National and whatever's theirs must be perfect therefore but yes that's incredible and again the elevation changes are incredibly dramatic as a matter of fact. If you stood on the first tee, on the uh, excuse me, on the tenth tee 
Augusta National, the drop down to the bottom of the hill is the same height as the Statue of Liberty. It's about 110 feet, and it's 116 feet, so with big shoes, you know, it's 116 feet uh, from the top of the hill down to the bottom of the hill. That's virtually unheard of, and there are other examples of that on the golf course, but I guess 10 would be the most dramatic. But, you know, a drop off the size of the Statue of Liberty is pretty serious stuff. And again, you feel like you could, you know, sit on a mat and just slide right down the hill on the grass. And then you're hitting a, a, from the bottom of the hill, you're hitting a slightly uphill shot from a slightly downhill lie to an exceedingly difficult green. So you get a lot of subtle elevation changes, and then you get some really big ones. Number two is straight down the hill, and number 10 is straight down the hill, and 18 is straight up the hill, and one is is straight up the hill. One, the steepness of one is just not to be believed, that when you leave that teeing ground and walk to the top of the hill where you would ideally hit your, your tee shot, it's it's forty five degree angle. It's it's incredibly it's it's crazy. You just can't imagine it until you get there. And Peter, you know, as, as as much as we think about everybody today who would just die to be a member at Augusta National, it wasn't always that way, right? I mean, when they first started the club, Clifford Roberts had to do a, a fair amount of uh, selling just to get people to come in and be members. Oh yeah, they sent out. I can't remember what the original initiation fee was. I part of me wants to say like fifteen hundred, and part of me wants to say ten thousand. I'm not sure which the number is, but it wasn't a lot of money. And uh, they maybe they sent out ten thousand invitations for fifteen hundred apiece. That might have been it. And they sent them to you know everybody that they'd ever heard of who played golf, inviting them to be a member of the club. I mean, they just went out blanket. You didn't have to have a member represent you or any of that stuff. It was, you know, if you want, if you want to join, then we want to have you. And uh, so, uh, yes, it was a real struggle at the beginning, and you know, and it was the beginning of the depression, and um, and money was tight, and you know, the, his Jones's partner Clifford Roberts was an investment banker on Wall Street, so he was well connected, which helped bring some money in. Uh, Mr. Woodruff, who I think was the head of Coca-Cola at the time, in the place where Jones ended up making a lot of money on the stock and by owning a distributorship. Um, he put up a lot of money. Alfred Bourne of Singer Sewing Machines put up a bunch of money. So they had a, you know five or seven really well-heeled guys who put up money to sustain the club in its very early years. And it wasn't really until... Uh, the tournament was probably it was probably wasn't until almost 1940 that the club was on solid ground. They certainly weren't in good shape at the time of the first tournament in 1934. I mean, you were still in the depression and people were still struggling, and uh, and there wasn't a very large membership. And then you know, and then it got more interesting to be a member of Augusta National, and then it got really interesting to be a member of Augusta National. So. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was a it was an open for business and nobody showing up kind of a deal the first few years. And with all those influential people, you know, trying to you know increase the uh, the awareness of the golf club and get, getting the tournament started in '34, it wasn't all, it wasn't immediately a major golf tournament either, was it? It was pretty immediate. I mean, the 
you know, the tournament had a few things going for it. It had Bobby Jones going for it, you know, who in 1930 retired with 13 major championships, winning 13 of the last 21 in which he played. He was the most popular hero of Americans, great heroes of sports in the 1920s, the golden era of sport. He was even more popular than Babe Ruth was at the time. Um, so Jones was a national figure and a revered figure, and this was his first, you know, coming out project after retiring from golf. And it had been four years since people had seen him, and they wanted to see him. So you had a big attraction in Bobby Jones, and then you had the fact that Jones was therefore able to attract, you know, a stellar field. He was able to get every terrific player except Gene Sarazen who had a commitment in South America that week to do some exhibitions. Gene would come back in 1935, the second year, and then win the golf tournament. Uh, but uh, at that particular time, uh, uh, Sarazen was you know, not yet the player that, uh, I mean, has already, had already been the player that, you know, that that he would be and that the 1935 Masters would be the fourth leg of the Grand Slam and the first guy to win the Grand Slam, all four major championships. So it had Jones' ability to attract the best golfers of the time. Again, it had Jones. It had uh, a great time of the year to be played when the air was, when it wasn't too hot anywhere. And, um, and then the most important thing, and a great golf course, and then the last thing, and, and just as important as anything else, was the fact that the guys at Augusta National hired private railroad cars to take sports writers who were down in Florida covering the exhibition season, would take them on trains back up to the northeast through Atlanta, through Augusta, and stop at Augusta and let all these guys off of the train and put them up in hotels and feed them and wine them and dine them and take as good a care as they could of all these members of the press, so all of these famous, you know, writers of the time, including Grantland Rice and Al Laney, you know, would, would be on these trains after having covered what's known as the Grapefruit League, the exhibition season of baseball in Florida. And so all of these guys came to Augusta, and then they wrote about it, of course, so they're writing about Jones they're writing about Sarazen's double eagle. They're writing about the unusual golf course. Nothing like that had been seen in this country of that particular style until Augusta National came along. You know, they had Jones front and center and playing in the tournament that he created. Uh, so it was it was pretty quick to be established as a major, certainly less than five years. In the first four or five years, it was the Augusta National Invitational Tournament until they switched it over to the Masters, I think, in '38. And uh, so it was an instant. You're, you're certainly right about that. But it was fairly quick within the scheme of things. Everything that could go right for Augusta National and the, and, and the Augusta National Invitational went right. And you've made reference to, to Clifford Roberts several times, Peter, and, and, and Mr. Roberts was a, a was very strict about the club's rules and its image. And I've heard so many stories about, you know, senators and different players being escorted off the property because they did something that Mr. Roberts didn't approve of. What are some of the stories that you've heard about uh, uh, Clifford Roberts and how he managed the golf course? 
Well, he was just tough. You know, it's funny because for the first, say, 75 years, maybe a little longer, of golf in this country, the Green Committee has generally been ruled by a dictator. And that was the best way for things to be, for somebody to say, we're doing this and we're doing that, and when you wake up in the morning, that tree's going to be gone and there's going to be a new bunker over here. Dictatorships ran clubs, not only in terms of the changes to the golf course, but the way in which players would, would members would conduct themselves. And Cliff Roberts was no different than, you know, hundreds of other guys who ran golf clubs, and they did so with an iron fist, and you could be taken off the golf course for the slightest infraction. Um, uh, Harvey Ward uh, hit uh, two balls into a par four hole in a practice round and was escorted off of the property. Sam Snead played a practice round and bare feet and was escorted off of the property. Um, members showing up uh, not looking appropriately were escorted off of the property. So he was a tough guy, but he was he was a really clever guy. I mean, he's the one who came up with all the scoreboard innovations for, you know, green being even par and, and red being under par. Um, he came up with uh, with the way scoreboards look, and he came up with the way that scoreboards use their numbers in relation to par. He came up with a better way of using ropes around the golf course, the green, the, everything being green, the way the, the place was kept so perfectly. Um, you know, if a member said, you know, I think you ought to do such and such, if Cliff Roberts agreed with the idea, he did the such and such and sent the guy a bill for the work that was carried out. Um, <laughs> but he was, uh, you know, he was Jones's guy, you know, the older Jones got, the less with the program Jones got, and the more Cliff Roberts took control. But Jones was the president, but, you know, the chief operating officer, the day-to-day guy, was definitely Clifford Roberts. Clifford would eventually commit suicide when he had cancer pretty bad in 1976, shot himself down by one of the ponds at Augusta National, and they found his body in the morning. Um, but he uh, we, he was an incredibly influential figure in golf who probably doesn't get enough credit for doing some of the things and innovations that he came up with. And Peter, when you look back over the history of the Masters, which which tournaments stick out to you because of their historical significance to the game? Mm, well, I mean, there's 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 a number of those. I mean, if you look at say. The 1942 playoff between uh, Hogan and Nelson—that um, was, you know, two two of the best players of the time. At the, that at that point, Hogan had just started to win. Nelson was uh, had a had a better career up to that point than Hogan had, but that was uh, historically an incredibly important match. Nelson would end up winning that match. He went a whole, like six under through a 10-hole stretch in the middle of the round. And he once described the entire round to me, or, or almost did. I was doing a television show with him, and I started asking him a question about the playoff in 42. And he said, uh, well, he said, on the first hole, I pushed my drive into the trees. 
and he said there was a pine cone in front of my ball, and I couldn't decide if it was going to make it go left, right, or straight. And he and and I thought, oh my God, if he's going to do all of the shots of the round of golf this slowly, I, we're going to be here for an hour and a half. And then <laughs> thankfully he thankfully he said then I made a six on the hole, but he said then I was fine and I got it together. And he said I you know he said I. He said, I basically started hitting iron shots right next to the hole. But, you know, so that was a significantly historically important one. Certainly Gene Sarazen winning in 1935, the second playing of the Masters, really helped put it on the map. Going back to your earlier point about when did it get on the map, it certainly started to get on the map in 35 when Gene Sarazen on the uh, 69th hole of the championship made a double eagle two on the par five fifteenth hole, which enabled him to catch the leader Craig Wood, but then he still had to make three pars to tie him and, and finish the tournament tied. And they had a thirty six hole playoff with Sarazen, which Sarazen would win the next day. But that was historically important. Um Sarazen was a hugely revered figure. It was his last big win um, but certainly that helped uh, lead it to major championship status. I would say that 1956 was a particularly interesting. Well, 1954 was really big because you had Snead and Hogan um, in a playoff for the championship, and Snead would win that championship, and it was the last major that either one of them would win for the rest of their career. And uh, the golf was absolutely sensational. And there was an amateur, Billy Joe Patton, who had a chance to win the golf tournament, who made a pair of sixes on the par fives on the back to to, to lose the tournament to Snead and Hogan. But that, again, was historically important to the greatest players of all time, you know, notching up the final major championship win that either of them would have. In 1960, of course, was huge. It was the beginning of Arnold. It was the introduction of uh, Jack Nicklaus. It was, you know, sort of the end of Hogan uh, when Arnold finished 3-3-3, par birdie birdie to win that tournament over Ken Venturi by a shot. It was all comfortable with the press, and then Arnold goes birdie birdie to to catch him and beat him at the end, and the press left Ken Venturi sitting alone in the in the media center, and they, of course, surrounded Arnold. So that was a big one. Um, Jack Nicklaus winning uh, second in a row in 1966 was big. First guy to win him back-to-back. He was, it was a big one in 72 when he won to begin his season and it put him in position after a couple of majors to almost have the third leg in hand um, at Muirfield in 72, which Trevino won, but... That was a beautifully played Masters, and it was one of the great wins. 75 by Jack was another great one. Just beating Weisskopf and Johnny Miller was huge. Ray Floyd in 76, having a five-wood that he hit into most of the par fives, and won the tournament by eight shots. Uh, 86, of course, was huge. Well, 77 was big. Watson beat Nicholas, so historically that was meaningful, and he did it again in 81. And, uh, and you know, you can't discount the importance of Seve winning in 80 and 83 and what that meant to the, the boom of international golf. 
and then Jack's final Masters that he won in 1986, which we won't forget with a 30 on the back nine to come from a zillion shots behind and to win uh, over Greg Norman and Tom Kite. And then, of course, Greg Norman's huge collapse in 96, you know, which Rick Riley, the great sports writer, said the night before. He said he thought Greg was going to choke the six-shot lead away, and that's exactly what happened. And there were a few people who, who thought that that Greg might kick it away. I certainly wasn't one of them. I, you know, I had been witness as much as anybody else to the catastrophes that he'd had, but it didn't occur to me that he could throw away a six-shot lead with one round to go. And then you had the great, you know, then you had the great win by Tiger, of course, the next year in '97, um, which set the tournament record and which basically introduced us to Tiger. And then, of course, you had the three Phil wins in the 2000s and 04, 06, and 10, um, so that he finally got his major championship ball rolling, you know, with those three wins, and then the PGA and the British Open in 2013. So you've had so many historically important tournaments there, and the one thing to remember is that in almost every single case, a really, really fine player wins the tournament. It's very rare to come up with a name of somebody who wasn't really a super player. I mean, yeah, you had some guys who, you know, who were you don't think of as all-time greats like Trevor Immelman or uh, Mike Weir, but those guys are the exceptions. I mean, it's the Bernhard Longers and the Nicholases and the Palmers and the Tiger Woods and and those guys are generally the rule. It's always it's it's usually the really good players who win at Augusta National. And uh, the reason the field is so uh, is so small there, 90 players this year, is because it's an invitational tournament. So you're not automatically invited if you do something special. You've got to get you've got to get invited under their rules by winning a tournament, by winning something important, by finishing on a money list in an important position. So the criteria to get in is is difficult, but. There's never been a tournament there that somebody said, oh, so-and-so should have been invited. I can't believe he isn't here. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you've you've had incredibly uh, great players win the majority of the Masters, and so it just becomes an incredibly historical golf tournament in that sense, and the fact that it's played on the same golf course every year lets us be as familiar with Augusta National as we are with our home course so, you know, so it, it makes it more personal for all of us. And, of course, it's the first major of the year, and it heralds the beginning of spring and renewal of hope and so forth. So it's it's got a lot of historical importance going forward, and it all goes back to the fact that you had the best player of his time and the greatest mythical athletic figure of his time, Bobby Jones, as the guy who pulled it all together. Peter, let me throw a couple of other years at you to get your thoughts on on how important they were to to the sport and and to the, its growth. Really, if we went back to Palmer's win in 1958, sort of right around the time that you know television had just taken off, and and uh, you know all of a sudden you know Arnold has his you know his mass appeal and Arnie's army and that sort of thing. How how significant or how important was 58? and bringing golf to the masses? Well, it was it was very big. I think that was the third and fourth round were actually televised that year. I think it was the 
second or third time that it had been televised. I think 56 Mm -hmm. was the first year. And so by 58, television, you know, was existed and Palmer, you know, was the charismatic swashbuckling hero that was perfect for television who could also win and close and do magnetic and incredibly athletically successful things on a playing field. And, uh, and then of course, you know, the, the fact that you had a golf tournament in the masters that was so cool right from the very beginning and so different right from the very beginning, but the tournament, uh, you know, was, was notable for things that happened, you know, during the fourth round that, uh, made it an unusual event, but there's, there's, there's no discounting the timing of Arnold and television. It came along at the perfect time. I mean, Sneed and Hogan were kind of winding down their careers. Nicholas had not yet hit the scene. Gary Player was from South Africa. Billy Casper wasn't particularly attractive. And so, you know, until Arnold, you know, established himself as the figure, golf didn't have anybody who was going to lead them into the promised land. And, and Arnold came along with sex appeal and charisma and a great golf game and looked great in his clothes and the women loved the way that he looked and guys wanted to be near him and so you know he just embodied and he he looked like an athlete and he swung like an athlete you know it was it was a very athletic kind of a move and he had great muscles and he was in good shape so you know he he was a very attractive persona to come onto the golf scene and the camera loved him the camera doesn't love everybody but the camera loved him and uh, so the timing was absolutely, you know, perfect. And then, you know, you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of guys who ultimately benefited from that, all the players on the tour who came along when Arnold did and after Arnold did, who reaped the benefit of everything that he was doing to get everybody more money by having the purses increase because he was so exciting. So 58 was huge in terms of the television. It was also huge in terms of, us getting to know Arnold a little bit. They had the ruling on the back nine where Venturi said that Arnold took a five and Arnold said, no, I took a three. And there was a, a ruling dust up and Arnold was clearly correct. It was about an embedded ball. And Venturi said, you can't play it. You have to play the embedded ball. And Arnold said, no, I'm entitled to relief. So he played two balls, made a three and a five. And a whole later, Bobby Jones and Cliff Roberts said to the guys, he said, Palmer's three is going to stand on the 12th hole. And so, you know, then Arnold went ahead and hit a three-wood to 20 feet on 13 and made the putt for eagle three, and that was the end of Venturi in 1958. So it was a meaningful tournament in terms of expanding the image and the notoriety of the Masters through television, but also introducing us to uh, to Arnold Palmer and, and his charisma and uh, a great break that he got, um, but he clearly played by the rules and played played the shot that he should have played. And um, but yes, that was uh, that was a magnificently important year. Let me go forward a couple of years to '61. What about Gary Player's first win, the first international winner of the golf tournament? What did that do with respect to bringing more international players to the tournament? Well, it quietly started bringing in guys from the rest of the world. That didn't really seem to happen in a meaningful way until 
Well, really the 1980s when all of a sudden you had Longer and you had Seve and you had uh, Sandy Lyle and you had Nick Faldo. And, I mean, you know, you had a pretty big group of guys there that, you know, all were born in the late 50s. Colin Montgomery another good example. Uh, but certainly Gary made it relevant to be a golfer who wasn't from the United States. I mean, golfers who weren't from the United States up to that point largely played their golf on the European tour and did not have any notoriety. As a matter of fact, you couldn't come up with a name of an international player other than player, you know, who made a difference at the time. And um, Gary Player um, in 1961 um, played a fine tournament. He finished his final round. He figured that Arnold had won. Arnold had a lead on him, and they came up to uh, Arnold came up to the final hole on the final day, and hit his tee shot, and he had a one-shot lead. And then he accepted the congratulations of uh, a fan of his um, behind the ropes who called him over. And Arnold had yet not hit the green and two putted for par to win the golf tournament. And then he went ahead and blocked it into the front right bunker, then hit it over the green, then chipped it 15 feet by, then missed a 15-footer, makes double bogey, and loses the tournament by a shot to Gary Player. So the first day that I ever met Arnold was when I was at my first day of work at the Golf Channel. And I went to Arnold's office in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And his office is actually a converted house. And when you walk inside the house slash office, there's this huge framed thing with a master's jacket and wax seals and signatures and score four scorecards from the four Sundays that he won the Masters in 58, 60, 62, and 64. And, and the whole thing is very official looking. And so I walk in and I'm standing by myself and I'm looking at this magnificent thing and I look at the scorecard from 1958, and I see the par on 12 and the eagle on 13, and I recognize the rest of the round for what it was. And then I looked at the scorecard from 1960, and the scorecard that I'm looking at for 1960 finishes with 3, 4, 6, which is what Arnold shot in 1961 to finish the tournament. He shot 3, 4, 6. In 1960, he shot 3, Three, three to finish the golf tournament. So I'm looking at this card, and I can't believe they've got the wrong card. And I know which card I'm looking at. I'm looking at the next year. They got it wrong by a year. So I'm looking at it, and I couldn't believe that that was the case. And at that point, Arnold's administrative aide came out to introduce himself to me, and his name is Doc Giffen. And I said, you know, Doc, you've got the wrong scorecard here for 1960. And he said, I, he said, you don't want to cause any problems at this point. He said, you just, uh, he said, you just, you just lay back. It's your first day at work. And I said, no, really, Doc, it's the wrong scorecard. He said, okay, have it your way. So he goes and gets Arnold out of this office in the back, and Arnold comes out, and Arnold's hand is humongous. And you shake his hand, and you lose your hand inside of Arnold's hand. And I said, hey, Arnold, I said, you know, in 1961. You know, you lost to your good friend Gary Player when you screwed everything up from the middle of the 18th fairway. And I said, and I think that's the card that's up here um, under this framed glass. Um, 
I, I said, yeah, this is the wrong card. This is the year that you lost to your good friend Gary Player. So he turns around and he folds his arms and he's looking at this card and he's looking at this card and he's looking at this card. And finally he stops and says, I can't believe I lost to that son of a bitch. <laughs> So we became uh, friends. So we hit it off right then and became friendly and got along really well. And uh, actually later that day, it was a Monday, we went down to the practice tee and the course was closed and Arnold's hitting some balls and the head pro is there and the best player of the club is there and I'm there and another guy from the Golf Channel is there. And Arnold says to everybody, can you tell what I'm doing differently? And I saw it instant. I saw it in a half a second. I knew exactly what it was. And and so the other three guys went, I don't know, I don't know, and I don't know. And I said, I know. And he said, what is it? I said, you squared off your right foot relative to the target line. I said, it was flared. I said, and now it's squared. And he said, that is exactly right. So we really became friendly after that, and that was all on the same day. So that was a good start to our relationship. And then then we played golf after that, which uh, was also amusing. I hit uh, one shot that went through the windshield of his golf cart. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, true story. We were driving down the 13th hole, and he parked his cart on the left cart path. And I was about 40 yards behind the cart, and he walked over to the middle of the fairway where his ball was and where every one of his tee balls was. And I thought, you know, if I hit this three iron and I just hit it over the top of the cart and I hook it, I could knock this onto the green. I had been playing horribly, too. I had been hooking everything. And so I took the three iron and I flushed it, except it didn't get above the cart. It got just above the golf clubs and just above the steering wheel and goes through the windshield, makes a hole like a grapefruit. The ball goes like another 30 yards. Arnold getting, then gets on the phone with the president of the Golf Channel and says, Peter's here, he just made his first hole in one. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I've got good memories of the 61 Masters because I've talked to Gary about it and because I've talked to Arnold about it and, you know, Gary always says, I knew Arnold was going to make a bad shot when he went into that bunker on 18. He had that blade wide open, and you don't want it wide open for that shot. You needed a little bit more square. And he said, so I knew he was going to hit it long, and then he hit it long. And he didn't know any of that stuff. He just makes it up as he goes along, I think. <laughs> and, uh, well, in some cases he does anyway, just because he's such a good storyteller. Sometimes he needs information that he doesn't have, so he comes up with it himself. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's a piece of work. How was he last week when you interviewed him? Ah, uh, he was fantastic. It's always, uh, you know, an honor to talk to Gary player, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's always, uh, such a great interview. Got great stories and, you know, you know, historically accurate that I can't comment to, but, uh, right. I know he's always a pleasure to talk to. Yeah, but 61 was a huge year. That was a very important year, and television was becoming more established, and Gary Player then put his, you know, that's when he really became the final member of what was known as the Big Three throughout the 60s, and he would continue to win major championships. He won one the next year in 62, 
Um, and then he won the U.S. Open in 65 to complete the career Grand Slam. So, you know, and then he won the Masters in 74 and 78, the British Open in 74 and 78. So he had a very long major championship career. Um, and one of the best-known victories is one where he slightly backed into it in 1961. And, Peter, one of the greats from the from the 70s, that uh, we don't associate with Augusta National is Lee Trevino. Sort of convinced himself that he couldn't compete at Augusta National. Was was it his game that he didn't like bringing to Augusta National and thinking the golf course didn't suit him, or were there other issues uh, issues around his nationality that kept him from competing there more often? Well, he said the golf course didn't suit him because you had to hit the ball high and he hit the ball very low. So he said the course was not the kind of course that he could do a good job on. But he felt uh, like a lot of the folks there were uh, racist and bigoted and that they thought he was a third-class citizen. And he immediately got a chip on his shoulder and he started changing his shoes in the parking lot. And then he stopped trying, and then he stopped coming, and then he made a fuss about, you know, I can't win the Grand Slam because I can't win at Augusta. And Nicholas said, that's nonsense. You can win anywhere that golf is played. You're one of the greatest players of all time. You've got six major championships. Uh, you've got to come to Augusta National. And... uh and he wouldn't come, and he and he felt that uh, he wasn't, you know, that he was being treated as were the other people at the club like second-class citizens. I mean, you know, Clifford Roberts said, "As long as I'm alive, the players will be white and the caddies will be black," and that sort of you extend that thinking with regard to the employeeship at the club. You know, everybody was black, and all of the members were white, so you had the same, you know situation going on there with regard to the members and the people who worked at the club and Trevino of course picked up on that and didn't like it so uh, you know he'd had to endure some slurs and some hardships because he was a Mexican American and he'd had to deal with some stuff and uh, and he didn't like what the black folks at Augusta National had to deal with and he didn't like what he felt he had to deal with and um, and 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 made it well known and didn't show up and and it kept you know, a major championship off his resume. He could have won there. One of the um, one of the events that you talked about in the historical review of some of the bigger tournaments there. Obviously, this year is the 30th anniversary of Jack Nicklaus's win in 1986. Curious to get some of your thoughts about you know what that tournament was like, watching that tournament, watching him come from essentially everyone, you know, had, uh, had ruled him out, thought he was, he was over and done with by 86. What did that tournament mean as a, as a fan to you? And then what do you think it means in the annals of golf? Well, it happened so quickly in a funny way because, you know, you're watching the last round and it's Seve's got the lead and everything is calm, and there's nothing explosive going on. And they didn't even show Jack birdieing 9, 10, and 11, if I remember at the time. But he birdied 9, 10, and 11 to get himself in the position where he could get back into the golf tournament. And uh, nobody made a fuss about it at the time. And then he bogeyed 12, so nobody made a fuss about it at the time. Then he birdied 13 as it was a mini fuss. 
Then he parred 14, and the fuss was off again. So, you know, with four holes to play, you know, he was still, you know, four shots behind. So, you know, the excitement didn't really build until 15. So, as a fan, it happened rather quickly because he makes the eagle on 15, and then birdies 16 and 17, and almost birdies 18 from about 45 feet, which I wonder if a lot of people remember. And uh, so it, w- it was quick the way it happened. It was just this big explosion at the end of the round, even though it was set up by the birdies at 9, 10, and 11. And Sandy Lyle was his playing partner and said that those putts looked like they came off of a pinball machine. He said they were so perfectly struck and the blade was so perfectly aligned and the the, the tempo was so ideal and the face alignment was so ideal and the path was so ideal and uh and Jack those three putts were like 20 20 and 25 feet they were not short putts they were they were longish and uh so you know it was incredible too as a fan because you know here's Sebi who's playing for his dad who had just passed away and Sebi hits a great shot in the 13 and is celebrating with his brother who's on the bag it was a premature celebration and then uh Nicholas is slightly ahead of Seve on the golf course, and then Seve, with the lead, has a five iron in the 15 and makes a very tentative swing and snaps it into the creek and makes six. And then that was all for Seve, and uh, and that was all Jack needed to get himself in position because as Seve's doing that, Jack's making another birdie and had just come off making an eagle. So that turned everything around. Um you had Greg Norman, who made uh, four birdies in a row on 14, 15, 16, and 17, again, which you didn't even realize it was happening until it had happened. And then he was tied with Nicholas to, with one hole to go and then made bogey there. So that was a little bit of a microcosm of his whole career, a charge followed by a, a fall. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was an incredible tournament as a fan because it was won by the best player of all time way past his peak doing things he hadn't done in years making eagles and birdies and making them in clusters so we hadn't seen that from jack since 1980 when he won the u.s open and the pga so it had been a few years and therefore it was totally unexpected um as a fan and you know and deeply appreciated as a fan because of how spectacular the golf was and how many of the best players of the time were involved? You know, you had Greg Norman right in the middle of things. It was on that on that particular year of 86. He held the 54-hole lead on all four major championships and only won the one, the British Open. And, uh, again, finished second to Jack in 86 at the Masters. So as a fan, it was everything that you could possibly ask for. You know, it was uh, everything about it was extremely emotional and, people were crying and people were riveted to the TV and people couldn't believe what they were watching. And, uh, Trevino was in a bar somewhere at an airport and skipped his flight so he could watch the end of the golf tournament. I mean, pretty, uh, pretty amazing stuff. So, uh, yeah, 86 was huge from that point of view. And then from a historical point of view, it was off the charts. I mean, Here's Jack winning his sixth Masters. Nobody had ever else had won five except for Jack. So here he is with his sixth Masters, his 18th major championship, 
a nice round golf number 18 is. And uh, it was the last hurrah, and he showed us one more time what the greatest player of all time can do. And it, uh, in terms of the, the tournament that people remember most about the Masters who were old enough to remember 86, remember 86 is, you know, the most exciting and thrilling one. And they remember 96 as being, oh, my goodness, I can't believe we all lived through that. It was like watching somebody dying slowly. So 86, huge historically, huge from a fan point of view, and uh, everything you could possibly want in the golf tournament, which doesn't happen very often. And we've got a chance this weekend to have an incredible golf tournament because you've got Rory and Jordan Spieth tied for the little one shot apart, excuse me, going into this afternoon's round. This has a chance to be, from a fan point of view, really fascinating and from a historical point of view, very interesting. So, you know, we could be in for an interesting uh, year of the Masters, given what this weekend brings us, that would make us talk about it like 86 and 96 and 56 and 66 for that matter. So, um, yeah, spectacular, spectacular weekend of viewing, I think, is coming up, or so I'm hoping. Right, and so are so are we all. And you know, before we let you go, Peter, you know, thinking about this, you know, this year and what we're watching right now, is it a two-player race between Spieth and McElroy, or do you think someone like Day or someone else in the field can can make a run uh, today and tomorrow? I think somebody else can make a run. You know, Day's only five shots back. Five shots at Augusta National can go in twenty minutes. I mean, it's so easy for somebody to go ahead and bogey number 12, and then the guy behind him makes birdie. The guy pars number 13, the guy behind him makes eagle. I mean, there's three of your five shots, and nothing even happened yet. So five shots, and and he's got two days to make up five shots? That's plenty of time. I mean, you know... It depends what Rory. It depends what Rory and, and uh, Jordan do. If if they shoot a pair of sixty eights today, then only those two guys can win. But if they shoot a pair of seventy twos today, then other guys can win. And it's going to be really windy again, so it's unlikely that there'll be more than a score or two in the sixties. Hopefully, they'll make the pins a little bit easier today. They were very tough yesterday. You had no rounds in the 60s. We like seeing rounds in the 60s at Augusta National. So I'm hoping they soften up the pins a little bit. But, yes, they can be caught and they can be passed. And if it's going to be done, it'll be done by Jason Day. So someone like a, a Danny Lee, who's a, you know, only a couple of strokes back, or you know, we, we've, I mean, you and I have talked about Brant Snedeker for the last couple of years when we've been talking about the Masters, a guy who's played well there at times, tied for sixth in, in 2013, tied for third back in, in 08. Either one of those guys or someone else that's not a Jason Day, do you think could could make a charge and make a run at this? No, I definitely don't, because it's almost always the case that a great player wins at Augusta National. It's very rare when you have a guy who nobody's ever heard of win the Masters. It's, it's usually a pretty good name. And, uh, I mean, if you just look at the last few years, I mean, the names are all really good. And uh, I would expect that nobody who hasn't proven himself before is going to pass both Spieth and Rory McIlroy or that they're going to backpedal so much that somebody else slips ahead. 
Now, I think it'll take a, a player that we would call a near great player, which I would say Jason Day is near great. Great's, you know, very tough word. You know, great means one of the best ever, ever, ever. Jason Day is not there yet. But, you know, Jason Day is certainly capable of coming back and certainly being the guy who could shoot a 69 today and get himself within two or three shots going into tomorrow. And then anything can happen if it's two or three shots. But I still say five shots over two days is nothing, depending on the circumstances that unfold. Peter, before we let you go, remind our listeners how they can find you know so many of the great episodes that you your show and, and the great interviews that you did over time. How can they find it? Uh, the Peter Kessler Show on iTunes has the audio to a great number of shows that I've done, um, so you can find them there. Going to release another slew of those in the next couple of months. These go back about twenty years, a lot of them. So. There's some good historical stuff in there, but that's uh, that's a good place to listen to some some nice archived shows. Peter, you know I, I consider you a a national treasure. How we're not listening to you oh, and on. the great interviews that you've done uh, every week still, or every day for that matter, is is, is absolutely mind boggling to me. The things that you've done and the people you've talked to and the interviews that you've conducted are probably the best of all time. I can't thank you enough for continuing to come back and share some of those stories and insights with us. Anytime, my friend, you ask great questions. It's a great show. It goes out to an incredible audience and I'm uh, just thrilled to be a part of it whenever you include me. Thank you. I appreciate it, Peter. Enjoy the weekend, my friend, and the rest of the golf tournament. Uh, Hopefully I get the opportunity to catch up with you again real soon. In the meantime, all the best to you and your family. Same to you and all of your listeners. Thank you, Peter. Take care. That is Peter Kessler, the voice of golf. And, folks, I promise you, if you haven't been out to the Peter Kessler show on iTunes and listened to those or gone back and you know, seen some of the videos that are available of the uh, interviews that Peter has done with uh, the most influential people in the history of the game of golf, you're doing yourself a disservice. It just doesn't get any better than what Peter has done in the interviews that he's conducted. Please go check it out on iTunes, the Peter Kessler show. It's really fantastic stuff. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode. But before we close up shop, I want to remind you about our friends and our partner, PGA Tour professional Jim Estes and the great folks over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Let's hear from Jim about the great things that they're doing. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. 
Yeah, they're doing some amazing things over at the Salute Military Golf Association. To find out more information, go to smga.org to see how you can get involved. All right, everybody, my sincere thanks again to Peter Kessler for making today's show so much fun for me to be a part of. So insightful, so many great stories that Peter knows. And and like I say, no one knows the rich history of the game of golf better than Peter Kessler does. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazari and our announcer Joe LaGianusa. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream it live on Blog Talk Radio. You can hear us also on the Armed Forces Radio Network, iHeartRadio, and uh, so many great places around the net. That show, like this one, like I say, is also available. You find us on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player.fm, SoundCloud. We're all over the net. So uh, whatever most convenient for you, you can find us and listen to us while you're out and about on your commute. You can listen to us. You can find, you know, listen to us while you're out and about at the, you know, at the grocery store, at the mall. Please take us with you everywhere you go. Uh, On Thursday Night Tailgate, we are joined every week by legends and stars from uh, around the NFL, the CFL as well, our new friends over at Major League Football, the new spring league that's going to kick off in 2017. We're, uh, We're helping them. Bring, bring hype about that new league, so please check us out. You'll hear about that as well every single week on Thursday Night Tailgate. You can check out both shows. You can find us on Facebook and give us a like. That's important to us as well. Next on the tee with Chris Mascaro, Thursday Night Tailgate, we've got Facebook pages. Interact with us. Give us a like. That's important to us. You can find us online, this show at nextonthetee.net and thursdaynighttailgate.com. Stream or download any of our archive episodes, folks, for free. And stay up to date with who some of our future guests are going to be by going to either site. My friends, thank you again for choosing to listen to this show today. We know you've got hundreds of other shows you have the opportunity to listen to. We really appreciate the fact that you're making Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the T with Chris Mascaro. Where PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors And media members go to tell their stories Join us the same time every Saturday To hear more stories about the game we love From the people who love sharing those stories with you It's all about the great game of golf It's all about the great game of golf Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii.